have been spending time again this summer in the Psalms, and particularly this summer, uh, thinking about how the Psalms uh, help us to uh, handle our emotions. And uh, we've talked about fear so far, we've talked about anger, and this morning we'll talk about grief. Um, You know, John Calvin said that the Psalms are a mirror of the human emotions. So the human heart can look into the Psalms and see reflected back to it every emotion that the human heart experiences. Um, God understands our emotions. He knows them. He's not surprised by them. But he doesn't leave us without a way to work with them. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, I I told you that Tim Keller said this, the Psalms do not say that we should be under-aware of our emotions or overawed by our emotions. We shouldn't be stuffing our emotions or bowing to them. We shouldn't be denying them or venting them. We should be praying them. We should be pouring them out into the presence of God and processing them there. And that is what Psalm 126 says will help us do this morning. Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 126, a song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. And then the psalmist shifts to present day. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you. We are so grateful that you have given us 150 prayers, songs, uh, these songs that reflect every emotion that we ever feel, but at the same time, uh, you use them to help shape our emotions as those who are created and redeemed by you. You want us to feel um, rightly. And so this morning we come and ask that you would use this one, Psalm 126, a strange little psalm. Um, Use it to shape us. By your Holy Spirit, come and touch our hearts all the way down deep and make us more like Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. When I was in high school, one of our poets, one of the poets of our generation, Sir Elton John, had a hit song that went like this. I'm going to show you some of the lyrics. It said, guess there are times when we all need to share a little pain. And ironing out the rough spots is the hardest part when memories remain. And it's times like these when we all need to hear the radio, 
because from the lips of some old singer, we can share the troubles we already know. Sing with me. Turn them on, turn them on, turn on those sad songs. Come on, you know it. When all hope is gone, why don't you tune in and turn them on? KB, you know this, don't you? Come on. <laughs> they reach into your room, oh, oh, just to feel their gentle touch. When all hope is gone, you know sad songs say so much. How many of you have ever heard that? You just didn't know what it said and where it came from. Uh, and then the next verse, he says, If someone else is suffering enough, oh, to write it down, where every single word makes sense, then it's easier to have those songs around. The kick inside is the line that finally gets to you. And it feels so good to hurt so bad and suffer just enough to sing the blues. Now, I think Sir Elton is right. Uh, sad songs say so much. And whether it's the radio or your Spotify playlist or for some of you, your vinyl LPs, um, you, probably, you probably have songs that help you express your sadness. Songs that have a line that finally gets to you, that connects to that kick inside. And sometimes you listen to those songs because, to be honest, it just feels good to hurt so bad. But if sad songs on the radio or Spotify can say so much, imagine what sad songs written by the one who made you and loves you can do for you and in you. On the front of your bulletin, um, Dr. Collins has this quote. He says, The songs do not simply express emotions, but when sung in faith, they actually shape the emotions of the godly. The sad songs of the psalms not only say something, they shape you into something. And why is that? It's because when you sing or pray the psalms with your heart engaged with the God who wrote them, it's not just the psalm that reaches into your room and has a gentle touch. It's God himself who reaches into your heart and gently touches the core of who you are and shapes it into all that he meant it to be. This is my prayer as your pastor. I, I want the Psalms to do this for you. I want the Psalms to do this for me. And that's why every summer we're going to soak in the Psalms. Um, and it should take us, you know, only 15 years to get through all 150 of them. Um, but they're powerful. There's something powerful about them. And so this morning, uh, let's look at one of these sad songs, uh, Psalm 126. Uh, it, part of the title of the song, one of the descriptions of this song is that it's a song of ascent. It was one of the, the sad songs that God's people would sing together on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem to, fill, uh, to celebrate the Feast of Israel. And Psalm 126 is a particular kind of song that scholars call a community lament. A lament is a song of sadness, of grieving. And this is a community lament. This is one of those sad songs that God's people sang together on their road trips. 
They didn't have a radio or Spotify, and so they couldn't tune in and turn on these sad songs when times were hard. But when they felt like hope was all gone, they were constantly, as families and as the family of God, singing this song together. Um, Psalms of lament like this one that came from the lips of some old singer who can help them share the troubles they all felt. That's why God gave us these psalms of lament. So, Psalm 126 teaches us that as God's people, the normal life of faith includes seasons of celebration and seasons of sadness. Look at verses 1 through 3. There's, there's seasons of celebration. They said they were glad because they God had restored the fortunes of Zion to them. There was laughter, there was joy, there was gladness. And what most scholars believe is that this is referring to the return to Jerusalem and the Promised Land from 70 years of exile in Babylon. God's people were restored uh, to Zion, their city. But there are also seasons of sadness in the life of faith, verses 4 through 6. Here we have the psalmist in the present tense crying out, restore our fortunes. There's something has happened. They've, they've lost that, uh, that joy and that laughter. And now there's a season of sadness. There's tears. There's weeping. Um, there's the hard work of renewal going on in this broken land to which they've been restored. Um, there's dryness in the desert. The Negev is a desert in uh, the south of Israel that was barren and dry most of the time, but sometimes in the winter there would be flash floods and streams would quickly build and flow through that land, and then when that happened, the vegetation would sprout up. So there's seasons of celebration and seasons of sadness. And Psalm 126 is a song that lets us know that that's normal. It's normal that in the journey of God's people, we sometimes feel like we're living the dream, verses 1 through 3, but oftentimes we feel like we're lamenting in the desert, verses 4 through 6. And God wanted his people, all of us of all ages, all together, to sing a song about living the normal life of joy and grief as we follow Jesus together as the family of God. So, Think about this. Some of you are living in verses 1 through 3 right now. You're living the dream. God has blessed you beyond your wildest dreams. Your house, your marriage, your friendships, your work, and your relationship with God are filled with joy, filled with laughter, filled with celebration. And for whatever reason, it's more clear to you than ever that God has done great things for you. But some of you are living in verse 4. You feel loss. You feel lonely. You feel longing. You're lamenting in a desert of grief. Your house is a desert. Your marriage is drying up and dying. Your friendships have no life in them. Your work doesn't satisfy. And you wonder, in all of this, where is God? You feel like you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Those two extremes are part of the normal Christian life. And if 
I would like to say to those of you who are living the dream right now, I'd like to say to you what the late Dr. E.V. Hill said when he was preaching his wife's funeral. He said, there are those who can say, everything I have ever asked, God has given me. And to you I say, keep on living. <laughs> because there will come a day when the dreams evaporate and you'll find yourself standing in the desert. Psalm 126 will help prepare you for that day. So if you're not living the dream, if you are living the dream right now, Psalm 126 is something that you just kind of need to file away in your heart and come back to when you find yourself in the desert. But those are the extremes. And I think a lot of us um, live in both at the same time in a lot of ways. It's not either living the dream or lamenting in the desert. It's, it's kind of both and. And uh, I, I kind of feel like, as I thought about the song this week, that Christina and I, I think we feel like we are in a sweet season of life right now. That God has been unusually kind to us. We're, we're kind of living in a dream. And this church, and this mountain, and old friendships that are being renewed, and new friendships that are being grown, all of that is a part of the dream we're living. We, we look around regularly and say to ourselves, God has done great things for us. But at the same time, there are things that grieve us. Some of those things are physical. Some of those things are relational. Uh, some have to do with how much growing in grace we still need to do, especially me. And some of those things are too hard to talk about publicly. So there's there's rejoicing and grieving, there's celebration and sadness all at the same time. And I just want you to hear God say through his word, that's normal. But people will talk to me and say, uh, gosh, I just can't get over that. I keep grieving this loss. I keep grieving about that. Why? Why does it hurt so bad? And I'd say, you're normal. You're normal. And when you enjoy the dream that you're living, that's normal. You should. It's okay. So, this is a great song for us to learn together what it means to sing about the joy and grief of living as rescued people in a wrecked world as we long for God to renew all things. And our focus this morning, though, is on the grief part. Uh, 30%, roughly, of the psalms are laments. They're psalms about grief. And that should encourage us that God is saying there is a grief that is good. And Psalm 126 is a psalm that will help us understand and practice good grief. Here's what we're going to think about today. Good grief feels. Good grief prays. And good grief grows real joy. Look at verse 4 with me. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Good grief feels. Um, good grief feels loss, and it feels longing. Good grief feels the loss of what once was. Restore our fortunes. There's something. We've lost the dream. Would you restore it again? Those good days and those good things are gone, and we grieve. 
the good grief also feels the longing for the restoration of joy. Like streams in the Negev, we long for joy to flow. We're longing for those rare times when joy flows and the fruit grows. Grief is the feeling of loss, the loss of the dream. What do I mean by that? I mean, the dream is the way it's supposed to be. It's the echo of Eden that is in all of our hearts. Grief cries out, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Whether it's the death of a loved one, the death of a marriage, the loss of a relationship with a child or friend, the loss of a job, feeling distant from God, saying goodbye to a place and people you love. All of these are losses of the way life was meant to be lived. And isn't that what Jesus did at the tomb of his friend Lazarus? Good grief. Cried. Jesus wept. And John says that it was a fierce sadness that he had. There was a tinge of anger at what death and sin had done and how his friend Lazarus was suffering the effects of sin on the world. Jesus was weeping and grieving the loss of what was supposed to be and at the same time longing for what he knew would be. So good grief cries in pain. It does not deaden its heart. Good grief is not stoic. It feels, it hurts, it cries. And some of you are going to say, Jimmy, I don't ever cry. But even if you cry on the inside, if, if there's something on the inside, maybe your kind of grief gets angry. Good grief can get angry. Jesus was angry at the effects of sin on his friend Lazarus. The point is that good grief never kills hope. It never deadens its heart. So good grief feels. But notice too in verse 4 that good grief prays. This is a prayer. He says, restore our fortunes, O Lord. Good grief feels loss and it feels longing in the presence of God. As Keller said, we process our emotions in the presence of God with him asking him to help us process them. We invite God into our grieving, even when it's angry grief, because good grief takes God seriously. Good grief not only cries in pain, but it cries out in prayer. It longs to see things restored to the way they're supposed to be. And it brings that longing to the one who created things as they were supposed to be, and who has promised to restore all things to the dream that he dreamed for them to be. So good grief feels and good grief prays, but finally, and most importantly today, I want to focus on good grief grows real joy. Um, I was very much helped uh, in this by... Tim Keller again when he says that the kind of joy you really need, the Bible says the kind of joy that you really need is the kind of joy that is the product of tears. There is a kind of joy that comes from avoiding tears, but that kind of joy, quote unquote, doesn't really change you. There is a kind of joy that comes through the tears that does 
change you. Verses 5 and 6. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He, he who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, the seed is your tears, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with them. There's something fruitful about good grief. Because good grief plants tears and harvests joy. A kind of joy that comes not by going around the tears or avoiding the tears, but a joy that is a result of the tears. It's a fruit of the tears. You know, a farmer can't harvest a crop that he never planted. Obvious. But there's a harvest of joy that only comes from planting the seeds of good grief. Just this week I read an article by a man that I knew in Dallas. He's a PCA elder and a Christian counselor that, that we in our church referred folks to him all the time. He was a very helpful counselor. And his name is Jim Pacta. And I was reading his story and um, he talked about their first pregnancy um, and how their child uh, died in the womb. He said, after several months into our first pregnancy, there was suddenly no fetal heartbeat. My wife carried the baby another month, waiting for her body to naturally deliver. He said it was excruciating. And then he explained how that pain and grief led them to examine their relationship with God and with each other in deep and painful ways that ended up producing good fruit, both in their relationship with God and their relationship with one another. And then he said this, We now look at that moment as a glorious turning point for us. Recently we were at the cemetery visiting our stillborn daughter's grave, and through tears I pointed and exclaimed, She is when God showed up. She started the journey of redemption for us, pointing us to a good father who doesn't give bad gifts to his children. Jesus wrote himself into our pain there. Jesus wrote himself into our pain there. And then he said it would be a while before we could embrace that part of our story. But we do now. This is what Keller is talking about. He says that going beyond what most of us would hope the Bible teaches, uh, we hope the Bible teaches that tears give way to joy, and of course it does. We read this morning in our worship service, Psalm 30, verse 5, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Of course, he says, the Bible teaches that tears give way to joy. But this, in Psalm 126, is deeper. This is more profound. For God's people, tears don't just give way to joy. We don't just wait for the tears to go away. We plant them and they produce joy. That's the reason why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, which Nathan read for us, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us. That word means to produce or to accomplish for us. Not just preparing for the future, but accomplishing right now for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Keller says, it's glorifying us, it's changing us, it's bringing a harvest of joy 
into our hearts. So this good grief that God gives us, these tears produce an eternal, weighty, glorious joy. So where do I get these magic seeds that produce a kind of joy that is eternal, weighty, and glorious? These tears, these seeds come from a new heart. Nathan read for us uh, from Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36 is talking to the people who are in exile. Remember Psalm 126 is they're reflecting on the restoration from exile, but Ezekiel is talking to the people while they're in exile, and he says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will do more than that. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And get this, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from you and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Good grief comes from a new heart. It comes from a restored heart. That's what Psalm 126 is pointing back to. The good grief of verses 5 and 6 are looking back to the restored heart of verses 1 and 3. The cause of their original joy and laughter and gladness and celebration was that God had rescued them from 70 years of exile. They were there because they had sinned against God by refusing to love them, love them with all they are and all they have and to love their neighbor as themselves in the place, the land that he had put them. They had profaned him in their land and they had profaned him in the nations. And God, in his mercy restored them, and promised to make them new. And because they knew the joy of being rescued from their sin and the joy of being restored into right relationship with God, they could grieve their losses and their longings with hope. But we know on this side of the cross that Ezekiel 36 the promise of being a new people with a new purity and a new passion and a new power of the Holy Spirit in us so that we could be in a new partnership with God. All of those promises only come because of Jesus. Because when we take this cup today, we'll remember that Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This cup is what guarantees the promises of Ezekiel 36, the new covenant. Because Jesus was despised and rejected by men, Isaiah 53 says. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He has surely borne our griefs and carried our sorrows because he was smitten by God and afflicted. Folks, these new tears from a new heart, this good grief that flows out of a restored heart, only come because Jesus planted his tears for you as he faced the death that you and I deserved. Hebrews 5 says, In the days of his flesh, 
Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reference, his reverence. For you, Jesus planted his tears in a garden called Gethsemane. Matthew says that taking with him Peter and James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Stay here with me and watch. Jesus cried tears of anxiety for you so that you could never know the anxiety of suffering the judgment of God for your sin. And so that your tears of anxiety would grow your joy in him. For you, Jesus planted his tears on a rock called Golgotha when it was hanging by nails on the cross. Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cried tears of rejection and abandonment for you so that you would never have to experience the rejection and abandonment of God for your sin. And so that the tears you cry when others reject and abandon you now would not just go somewhere. They would grow your joy in him. And then on the morning of the third day, Mary Magdalene stood weeping outside of the tomb, watering the tomb with her tears. And when she, when she saw Jesus, he asked her, Woman, why are you weeping? And then he said her name, Mary. And she melted into tears of joy and clung to him and ran to the other disciples and in joy announced, I have seen the Lord. For you, Jesus harvested new life and joy from an empty tomb. Jesus descended into hell and kicked open the gates of death, hell, and the grave from the inside out for you, so that you would never have to know the weeping and gnashing of your teeth for your sin forever. And so that now the tears you cry over death and decay would grow your joy in him. Jesus has planted his tears so that you could have a harvest of resurrection joy. And because of all of this, there is coming a day when we will hear a loud voice from his throne, Revelation says, that says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In the middle of your grief, in the middle of your deserts, you can remember that the Lord has already done great things for you. When through Jesus, he brought you back from exile and restored you to the immeasurable treasure and fortune of the joy of your salvation, of new life with him, of new life in him, of joy in Jesus. 
That's why you can trust God to grow joy from your tears of grief. So my friends, feel your grief. Pray your grief. But plant your grief in the tears of love that Jesus poured out for you. And he will make his joy grow in your desert. This table that we come to each week is a place where we say, the Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. This table is a place where you can come every week, whether you're shedding tears of joy because you're living the dream, or whether your tears are tears of grief because you're lamenting in the desert. This table is a place where you can come and remember, the Lord has done great things for me. And only because of that can I be glad in the middle of my grief. Father, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. That he planted his tears in the garden, on that rock, and he harvested resurrection joy and life out of an empty tomb. And that one day, he will personally wipe every tear from our eyes. Oh, Father, would you let this table, this, this place where we celebrate the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, be uh, a reminder. Let this be a wiping of our tears even as we wait for the day when they'll be wiped away forever. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.